0: So yeah, I, uh, I just want to challenge us tonight, I want to challenge us to think very carefully about what missions is. And to think very carefully about how it affects each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. No matter where you are at in life, no matter what stage you are in. Um, Linford has been a good friend. I'm not very good at long distance relationships, so I haven't I haven't kept a lot of contact with him over the last few years, but I've but I've enjoyed relating to him and and I know I probably don't know him as good as some of you, but I know him good enough to know one of his pet peeves. And that is when preachers, and I think maybe particularly Mennonite preachers get up and in the first couple of minutes of their sermon they spend most of their time self-deprecating. And uh, talking about how unqualified they are to teach that particular topic. And my confession is that that was a bit of a temptation for me um, this weekend. Um, But part of of the reason is because I I haven't been thinking a lot about missions over the past number of months. Um, We've been in kind of a transitionary time in in our lives with my family. and it just hasn't been on my mind much. So this preparing for this weekend was really good for me because I had to I had to take a look at something that I was that I was losing sight of, um, and uh, and really and really think about that because missions is important. It is very important for us as Christians as believers in Jesus Christ. So as I was contemplating this whole dynamic of what it is to do missions, what it is to be a missionary, I felt like I had to kind of take a step back and ask myself, what really is the mission of the church? What is my mission? How does does the mission of the church affect, relate to, or impact me? A 35-year-old school teacher who lives in a beautiful but relatively obscure valley in southern Colorado. How does it affect my wife, a busy, busy homeschool mom? How does it affect you or where you're at in life? Maybe you're a young person, maybe a single adult, maybe a middle-aged father, maybe newly married. Maybe approaching your twilight years in life. Maybe you're in an extremely busy time in life. Maybe you are struggling financially. Maybe you are doing quite well. Maybe you're facing some of the greatest challenges in your life. Maybe you're extremely busy. Maybe you're very tired. Maybe you're a farmer, a carpenter, truck driver, barn builder, car dealer coffee barista is that what you are paul is paul here i thought okay i thought i saw him but yeah i don't know anyway whatever you are maybe you're in the ministry maybe you're not what is your mission what does god have for you to do what does mission work mean to you I don't know, maybe you see mission as as something that takes, that, that is carried on in far off lands. Maybe you wish you could be more involved in that kind of mission, something far away. Maybe you feel obscure, feel like you're not very significant, or you're not doing anything significant. Maybe you're totally unconcerned about missions. I don't know. But, um, as it was for me, I think it's important for all of us to think carefully about what God is calling us to do. There's this, uh, there's this philosophy that has been very influential in American culture. It's called existentialism. And uh, without going into a lot of detail, because it's a fairly complex philosophy, the underlying, the underlying foundational belief to existentialism is that our experience defines truth. Um, experience defines reality so what you experience what you feel that is your reality that is your truth and that has actually been kind of captured by the psychological world and used as a methodology for counseling it's called existential counseling um, and there's it's fraught with problems there's many there's many things about it that are not good and it's highly influential in our culture as well as our churches but there is one thing that existential counselors do that is something that we can learn from. One thing that existential counselors talk about to their clients is their mortality. So, one of the best things you can do for, let's, let's say, a, a middle-aged man who works an eight to five job, comes home in the evenings, cares little for his family, spends the whole weekend watching football Um, you know works for the weekends for the paycheck drinks beer on friday nights doesn't care for his family his wife finally drags him to the counselor one of the best things maybe not the best thing but one of the best things the counselor can do is look that man in the eye and say do you know that someday you're going to die and when you come to the end of your life And you look back, is this what you want to see? Is this what you want to remember as having been what you accomplished in your life? I don't remember where I read it. Um, But there was an older preacher that was teaching some young pastors. And he said one of the most important things you can remember as a pastor, as a young pastor, is that someday they're going to carry you out the cemetery, put you in the ground, throw dirt on you, go back to the church, and eat potato salad. (laughs) There's something about coming to grips with our mortality that helps us, helps bring into focus our purpose in life. Why are we here? What are we doing? And I don't believe in guilt-tripping anyone into doing more for the kingdom of God But I do think it is important for us at times to ask ourselves what do we really believe and how does this shape what we do with our lives and when we get to the end of our lives what do we want to be able to look back on as having accomplished so let's uh let's look at isaiah 42. now it's kind of hard to preach um from isaiah without reading large passages because there's so much that really kind of runs together Um, and and isaiah 41 really sets up the context for isaiah 42 and i'm not going to read isaiah 41 but it it helps bring isaiah 42 into focus in isaiah 41 the author numerous times instructs his readers to behold one of the recurring themes throughout isaiah is the pure folly of idolatry, and the one overwhelming conspicuous dilemma with idols is that you have to make them, and Isaiah points that out very poignantly throughout his, his book. Why would you worship something you have to make, something that you built? I mean, by, that, by the very nature of that, it's, it's, it's showing that you are more powerful than the thing you are worshiping. And Isaiah points that out. He reminds us over and over again of the utter futility of worshiping things we have made. Chapter 41, verses 21 to 29 is a challenge to bring forth the evidence, for the nations to bring forth the evidence of their gods, their deities. And and get them to foretell the future. Go ahead, let let them predict the future. Let them tell us about the things of God. Um, There's kind of a cynical, sarcastic tone to what Isaiah is saying here. He's challenging them, do something. Do something that's going to terrify us or dismay us. Show us your power. He's challenging them. And then he says, behold, they are nothing. And in verse 27, behold, here they are. But when I look... There's no one. Verse 29, behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Our world is so full of delusive promises. And one of the main purposes of missions is to show the world the complete and total futility of earthly promises. How many suicides and substance abuse addictions need to take place in Hollywood for us to realize that fame and riches do not bring happiness. Sometimes we need to say, behold, look. Just look. Are those people really happy? Do they really have something that all of us want? Open your eyes. Look. Behold the absolute and total futility of the God's Of the nations and then we come to verse 42 excuse me chapter 42 behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now will I cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste, mountains and hills, and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols. I should... I should note that um, when when John emailed me and asked me for my theme, I told him my title for tonight's message that it, that it would be um, relentless justice, which I changed it somewhat. I changed it to relentless justice, glorious light. Um, the two things that I see as being sort of the uh, the mission of the of the servant. So here Isaiah is. Referring to the servant, and throughout Isaiah, he refers to a servant. And sometimes he is referring to God's chosen people. But it becomes obvious that there's also times when he is referring to none other than Jesus Christ. There's an obvious contrast here. As I pointed out in in Isaiah 41, it's cynical. It's, It's sarcastic. Behold the gods of the world. And then he totally changes his tone. There's this contrast, behold my servant. Instead of beholding the gods of the pagans, behold Jesus, the Christ. Behold, look, see, adore him, look upon his radiance, be mesmerized by his beauty. He is the one who God delights in. This is a beautiful picture of the joyful affection that is shared by the Trinity. God the Father unashamedly delighting in his Son and giving him his spirit to go with him and saying, behold, look at him, see him, delight in him. Are we seriously going to delight in the idols of the nations instead of the Son of God, the one who God delights in? the one who he has chosen. So in, in this passage, he talks about the, the servant that he has chosen and that he has called and tells us what his mission is and what his purpose is. What is the mission of the servant? What is his purpose? Why did he come? And I think if we are, as Christians, concerned about mission, I th- missions, I think it's logical to ask what was, or is, Jesus' mission. And I know that we are not Jesus, and so therefore we don't do everything that he did. He is God. We are not. But there is a sense in which we share the same purpose. We are here to accomplish his work and his plan. So what is it? And I would say that, according to this passage, there are two things that Jesus came to accomplish. And not just to accomplish for Israel, but to accomplish for the nations. He came, number one, to relentlessly bring justice. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And as was already mentioned um, this evening, we are in an election year. and if you're not aware of that, I would encourage you to remain in that state of ignorance because you're probably better off. Um, why is it that people get so passionate about elections? I think maybe it's because God has put in our hearts a longing for a more just world. Now, I know that on both sides of the political spectrum, spectrum or all sides of the political spectrum. There are people who vote for purely selfish reasons, but I think there are also people probably on on all sides of of the political spectrum who at least in a way, genuinely desire a better country, a country that protects the innocent, a country that severely punishes crime. A country that rewards hard work and innovation. A country that is concerned for the poor. A country that unites against terrorism and tyranny. A country where freedom is preserved. A country where, a country that is peaceful and safe. Um, In one of Donald Trump's speeches that I listened to, he said, America is not great anymore. I am going to make her great again. Now I'll be honest. When I heard that, it struck a chord, because, yeah, I would like to live in a great country, but there was there was also something that th- there was also this kind of glaring problem with that. Maybe some of you are thinking, he's not going to make us great, and that's maybe true. I, you know, can, is he qualified to be president? Honestly, I don't know. But the thing that that Really, um, the glaring problem that I see in that statement is that as a Christian, when I take an honest look at our country and the history of our country, I can't say that we are great. And I don't think we've ever been great. Now, I guess it depends on your definition of greatness. If you're talking about wealth, affluence, military strength, then yes, we're fairly great. But if you're talking about the kind of greatness that fights for biblical morality and justice, then I don't know that we've ever been great. Um, we started as a legitimate, or as a rebellion against legitimate authority. And, you know, I know you can make the argument that we were being unjustly treated and, and so forth. Um, and our founding fathers, and, and I have tremendous respect and in admiration for the courage that they had. Uh, Linford and James and and I were just talking about that this morning. George Washington's courage in the first two years of the Revolutionary War is is just amazing. He was a man who believed so strongly in something he was willing to literally put everything on the line. Um, And in the first two years of that war, he should have lost the war and, on numerous occasions, but, but somehow managed to, managed to win. Um, but even, even in, their, in their courage and, and the brilliant minds of, of the Founding Fathers of our country, there was tremendous inconsistencies. Some of them as they fought for freedom, as they talked about these wonderful inalienable rights, that all men are created equal. And among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Some of those men themselves owned slaves. So this problem of slavery created a deep rift in our country. And there was a rift that was not resolved for quite a number of years until the mid-19th century when our country engaged in a bloody, brutal civil war where countrymen fought and killed and killed and killed their fellow countrymen. And after the Civil War, there were soldiers and army leaders who, you could say, bravely fought to preserve the Union, and you could even make the argument that some of them were fighting to free the slaves, then went out west with their armies, and brutally, savagely murdered Native Americans. Sometimes entire tribes just east of us in Colorado, um, the Sand Creek Massacre, where an entire village of Indians was brutally murdered, not by terrorists or bands of outlaws or an enemy tribe, but by American soldiers under the orders of American generals. And at the beginning of the 20th century, this new ideology had come, out, had come forth. It was something called eugenics. It's the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the, the occurrence of desirable, heritable characteristics. And under that system of thought, thousands of people in America were forcibly sterilized because they were deemed unfit to reproduce. This movement was, of course, the foundation for which Hitler could build his terrible ideologies of racial hatred, his plan to develop a master race, which led to the Holocaust. And of course, in more recent times, and now, right now in our country, the killing of unborn children. You know, if we believe in life at conception, we are witnessing something far worse than the Holocaust in our country. Our country's not great. We've had bright moments where we've stood against tyranny and injustice, but we have been fraught with injustices of our own. And I don't think Donald Trump is going to change that. I don't think Ted Cruz will change it. I don't even think Ben Carson would have changed it. And as much admiration and respect as I have for great men, great leaders, they are all, they all have inconsistencies, they all have faults. There is only one, there is only one who ever came to this earth and selflessly, totally selflessly, set about to accomplish perfect justice. Isaiah, in his prophecy, says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Does that sound like today's politicians? No. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This man, the suffering servant, this champion of justice, will be gentle and kind. Have you ever felt like a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, a candle that is almost to go out? I'll be honest, I've felt like that a lot over the past three or four years. And it is so comforting to know that our champion of justice does not put those burning wicks out in the new testament jesus constantly reaches out to the weak and the broken but it says he will not grow faint or discouraged he will be relentless he will accomplish his mission fighting for justice in this world can be one of the most overwhelming and exhausting tasks You can never participate in, but Jesus is a tireless leader. He will accomplish what he has set about to do. Why? Because God is with him. He is God, and God is with him. He is God's chosen one to accomplish this task. He has come to bring justice. We look at justice, God's justice, often as a negative thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a wonderful thing. He will set things right. And secondly, he will come to be a light to the nations. The God who made the heavens, who stretched out the earth, the one who gives life and breath, calls and keeps his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. The one who gives life and breath, calls and keeps his servant, his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish this glorious task. And, and there's, this, there's this phrase in here where he talks about him being a covenant for the people. God's people had failed to uphold their end of the covenant, their part of the covenant. God, in his infinite mercy, sends Jesus into their place to, represents God, to represent God's people in the covenant. The one who said, let there be light, is the light. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He brings light into the darkness. He came to open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners out of dungeons and darkness. And when Jesus came, he validated his ministry by upholding this prophecy that Isaiah gave. He opened the eyes of the blind, literally. He was showing that he is the Messiah he's the one they were looking for he's the one he literally physically opened the eyes of the blind but there is a thread a theme that runs through Scripture that there is a blindness that is infinitely worse than physical blindness there is a prison that is infinitely darker than a physical prison and there is a dungeon that is infinitely deeper and lonelier and more despairing than a real dungeon it is the wretched blindness of one of those who cannot see past themselves it is the despicable prison of an enslavement to sin it is the despairing dungeon abyss Of lostness apart from Christ but God be praised Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind he came to deliver the captives from the prisons and the dungeons of despair he came to bring light the most glorious light not just to Israel not just to middle-class white Americans and not just to the underground church in China, but to the nations. He will not give his glory to another. He will not share it with carved idols. As I already alluded to, one of the recurring themes of Isaiah is that one of the primary goals of our work, one of the primary goals, in essence, of missions is to show the world the absolute futility of idols, the total and complete senselessness of worshiping the many things that we worship, possessions, sports, celebrities, sex, money, fame, beauty, adventure, thrills, pleasure, comfort, relationships, friends, houses, cars, lands, vacations, experiences, dreams, health, education, esteem, knowledge, and on and on and on, anything. Anything, anything that is worshipped in place of Jesus is absolutely, undeniably, and utterly pitiful compared to Christ. The one who is infinitely glorious and indescribably beautiful. And our mission is to show this to the world by telling them with our words and demonstrating it with our lives we are a people who sing a new song we are done with the tired worn out refrains of this dying world we have gotten off the terrible treadmill of earthly vain pursuits we long for justice we long for wrongs to be righted we ache for truth to prevail we hate evil we love righteousness and we long for all men everywhere to lift up their voices in praise to the one who has come to open the eyes of the blind, set the prisoners free, and deliver the captives from the dungeon. We sing a new song. So what is this song? I Think Revelations 5 verse 9 gives us a clue. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open the seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The light for the nations is the glorious gospel. The good news that the son has come to redeem us back to God. In verses 14 to 17, the picture kind of changes. Initially, we're told of a suffering servant, but now it changes when Jesus comes back He will come back as a conquering king. He will no longer hold his peace. He will come to accomplish the task, to complete the restoration. Isaiah uses vivid imagery. He uses the imagery of labor and childbirth. And those who have witnessed or experienced that um, know a a little bit about what that's like. There's a desperation. There's a longing for the child to be delivered. Now, I've never heard of a woman who is giving birth, laying waste to mountains and hills, but if they could, they probably would. Um, This imagery is is just something Isaiah is is really good at. This kind of zeal and passion is the kind of zeal and passion with, with which God will deliver this world. The depths of the entanglement of sin on this earth call for a deep and powerful restoration. And this restoration will be accomplished by our mighty warrior king. But even in this great act of restoration, the mission remains the same. He will bring, bring justice. He will lead the blind, shine light into the darkness, and show the utter folly of trusting idols. So the mission of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the warrior king, is to bring relentless justice and destroy the darkness with the glorious light of the gospel. Is this your mission? Does this shape everything you do? Does it shape the way you work, the way you run your business, the way you farm, the way you build, the way you teach, the way you raise your children? The way you spend time with your friends, the way you do your schoolwork, the way you treat your spouse, your employees, your boss, the way you deal with temptation. Those of you who are not out there on the quote-unquote mission field may be tempted to think that you're taking a backseat to those that are on the front lines, so to speak. We tend to separate mission from work, right? Owning a business or working for a business is seen kind of as a necessary evil in our church culture sometimes. We kind of see it as the way to fund missions, right? Somebody needs to work to pay for the missions. In his book, Business for the Glory of God, Wayne Grudem argues that working and owning a business is not just a necessary evil to fund missions, it's part of the mission. It is the mission. We are called to subdue the earth. We are called to work for the glory of God. We are called to allow the gospel to shape everything we do. And we can do that at work. We can do that with the way that we run businesses and so forth. They are part of the mission. Bringing justice, honesty, a good work ethic, doing excellent work for the glory of Christ, seeing our employees, our bosses, our customers as a mission field. It's part of the mission. Maybe you're a stay-at-home wife or mother. You just feel like you have such a lowly job because our culture despises stay-at-home moms. It may be changing, but there's still a lot of that out there. And I can, can I just encourage you, mothers? For a few minutes, your job is not unimportant. You are raising the next generation of men and women. Your mission field is crucial crucial don't ever let anyone tell you that what you're doing is insignificant or inconsequential it's very important now if god is calling you to sell your business and go overseas then by all means do it and and there is an element and and we won't probably talk about it much this weekend but but the fact that there are there are places in this world where the name of jesus has never been heard that, that's something we should all be concerned about. And if God is calling you to that, then go. By all means, go. But there are places right here in the Shenandoah Valley that need the light as well. Your friends, your neighbors, your milkman, your turkey rep, your coffee customers, your doctors, your co-workers, your employees, People who have had great injustices committed against them and long to hear of the one who cares about justice. But even more than that, people who have committed great injustices, like Lucian in our story, and need to hear that there is a remedy, there is a pardon for their sins. So missions isn't just something that exists way over there in other countries and other lands. As important as that is, it is all around us. This is the nations. America is a mission field. Shenandoah, the Shenandoah Valley is the front lines. And it's not just something we do in our spare time, or if we've been called by the mission agency to go somewhere else. It is, or at least it should be, a way of life. It should be deeply etched into the DNA of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So, so have you thought about the fact that unless the Lord returns, one day you are going to die? Your life will be over. And when you get to the end of your life and you look back, what will you wish you would have done but never did? because there was just too many other things to do. Things that you then will realize were infinitely less important. There's many reasons we can think of to not be open with people about the gospel, but when you really stop and think about those reasons, none of them are very good. Now, I understand the importance of not being obnoxious and maybe sometimes being a bit strategic, developing relationships and friendships and, and so forth, but we can't just rely on our good deeds and good relationships to be a display of the gospel. As, as important as that is, we need to sometimes speak. Jesus came as a humble, compassionate servant who was and is working tirelessly, truly tirelessly, bringing an unrelenting justice to a world that is full of injustice. He came as a light that shines in a world that is very, very dark, a light that penetrates the darkest night, and he has chosen us to be vessels of this mission, to be bold defenders of righteousness, to carry the light into the darkest corners of the earth. Is this your mission? Does it affect everything you do? Are you utterly and completely disenfranchised with the gods of this world, Are you sick and tired of spinning your wheels, searching and searching and searching for life in the many, many idols that are paraded in front of you every day? If so, may I offer you Christ. Behold, behold the chosen one of God, the suffering servant, the avenger of the wicked, the tireless dispenser of justice, the guardian of the weak, the gentle healer, the one who opens blind eyes, the rescuer of prisoners, the light to the nations, the one and only true God, the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. So sing a new song. Display his glory to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you came to bring justice because this world is so full of injustice. It is all around us. And we are so thankful that you have come to right the wrongs and that you will accomplish your mission and that you brought the light of the gospel so that we can see and behold you and Lord I just pray that each of us here tonight would have our eyes opened to the beautiful realities of who you are and what you have done and Lord I pray that that truth would be etched so deeply in our hearts that we cannot be silent. That we must share the greatest news in the world to those around us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you. May he keep you in perfect peace. Amen. You are dismissed.